Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hi, I'm Grant Haver, and I want to introduce you to the newest podcast on the DSR Network, Next in Foreign Policy. Every other week, Zoe Weinberg and I talk with new and emerging foreign policy experts about the issues of today and tomorrow. We've covered everything from the war in Ukraine to the impact of pop culture on policy. So if you want to better understand the people and ideas that will be shaping the debate in Washington and around the world for years to come, check us out wherever you find your podcasts. For more than five years, Deep State Radio has been on top of all the key foreign policy and national security stories impacting the world. We're incredibly grateful to our members who support our work and hope that you will consider becoming a member. Members receive access to exclusive bonus content, the opportunity to participate in discussions via our member Slack community, our weekly member briefings, and our new Ukraine Daily Brief newsletter delivered to your inbox each evening. Members also receive all of our content via private member feed. To become a member, visit bit.ly slash dsrmember and enter code APRIL2022 to receive 28% off a monthly or annual membership. That's bit.ly slash dsrmember and code APRIL2022. Thank you. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight, two, twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another edition of the podcast. I'm your host, David Roscoff, coming to you from cold, gray Cambridge, Massachusetts. We are joined today by two of our friends and uh, most valued colleagues, Dr. Kavita Patel, because it's Thursday and we try to have Kavita here every week. How are you doing today, Kavita? I'm sniffly and nasally, much like most of the country, but doing well otherwise. You would say that was because of allergies? No, I... Lori and I will probably get into this. We're just seeing an incredible spike of influenza, parainfluenza, coronavirus, not COVID. That is, that, is, that is exactly what we will get into in a moment. And as you have indicated, we have our friend Lori Garrett, Pulitzer Prize winning journalist and expert on all things infectious. Uh, how are you doing today, Lori? I'm fine. Well, that's good. That's, see, that's unusual. Everybody I know has been sick. I went to Washington about 10 days ago. There were these two big parties in Washington. One was black tie. One was white tie. I don't own a white tie. So I went to the black tie one. The white tie one, 70 people got COVID. Um, 72. 72. Is it up to 72? 72 that attended. But then think about the circles. And then, you know, Pelosi at all in the outer circles. Right. The one I went to, which was a black tie one, Fauci was there and Dr. Francis Collins were there. So I felt like there's something working here. You know, these guys know what's going on. But having said that, America seems to be like over COVID. It's like, okay, we're done. Doesn't matter what the data says. But I thought we could turn to you guys and say, 
just how kooky is that? And how do you view all of this? And, uh, you know, just start with the status report and then drill down. And let me start with Lori and then we'll go to Kavita. Lori, is America like lost its mind or what's going on here? Well, a lot of what's going on in the United States is also going on across Europe and many other places in the world, except China, where people are just fed up with wave after wave after wave of COVID. They feel like, okay, I went out, I got the vaccine. Then you told me to get another one. You told me to get another one, et cetera. And uh, they're fed up with everything that restricts their movement, everything that seems like in some way a hassle to their life. And the problem now is that you have so-called experts. Well, they they have expertise. I don't want to deride them. But people who are kind of in that pundit expert space have been very vocal about let's all decide that we're going into a new era with this pandemic. And in this new era, you'll make personal choices. But we're not going to have government imposition of restrictions. We're not going to have all these odious policies. Instead, everybody's just kind of going to look after their own family and take care of themselves. And so you have people who come out of a liberal tradition like Lena Wen and Ezekiel Emanuel and so on, making these kinds of statements. And meanwhile, Congress is still sitting on the necessary 10 billion for COVID emergency funding. And actually, more than half of that is already claimed by Pfizer. So it's not $10 billion to go to subsidizing free treatments, free masks and testing and so on for poor Americans. It is you know, half of it for the largest pharmaceutical company in the world. And we don't even have that passed. We don't even, you know, there's, we keep hearing there's a deal reach, but it's not an allocation. And so where we sit right now is that program after program across the country is running out of money or is out. If you are an upper middle class individual who got your two shots, maybe you got a booster and now you get COVID and it's one of the new variants, maybe it's BA3 or BA4 or BA5, we're, we're running out of BA numbers because we don't want to go back to the Greek alphabet, whatever it may be. And you want Paxlovid or one of the other drugs to help you get through your illness quickly and make sure you don't go to hospital. Well, guess what? You can get it probably, but your, your cleaning lady can't. The janitor who cleans your office can't. The frontline workers that are on the subway that was attacked in Sunset Park, working class folks that keep New York City alive and well, those folks can't get it because all these subsidies are disappearing. So where I think we're headed now, or we're already there, is a super class-based epidemic response, where it, it's starting to increasingly remind me of the bad old days of the 1980s under the Reagan administration, when we saw this surge in blame the victim medicine. If you have lung cancer, it's because you smoked, you no good, lousy schmuck, and we won't give you uh, health insurance, and we're not going to cover you, or your employer will penalize you or even fire you if you're overweight and over 50, or if you're this or that, whatever might boost their insurance costs. So I think we've hit what could turn out to be a very, very ugly phase in this epidemic where 
we're going to see more and more of sort of government services, the public good aspect, along with the collective goodwill aspect of the epidemic, just completely vaporize and be replaced by uh, you're on your own. It's your college education that helps you make your choices or your lack of a college education that helps you make your choices. It's your personal physician, if you have one, or it's your lack of access to a personal physician. And these are the things that are going to guide whether you end up in the hospital with variant number 205, or you walk the streets with a smile on your face and no mask. Yeah, so I'm oversimplifying what Laurie just said, but essentially, Kavita, as we approach 1 million cases, uh, uh, 1 million deaths in the United States, it's like COVID is for poor people and for stupid people. And do you agree? And, you know, on top of that, we seem to be learning a lot, although it has no effect on the programs Lori just spoke about, about long COVID, which is, it seems to be significantly more serious than we had reckoned. So Kavita, what's your take? To your point about COVID is basically for the poor and the stupid there's a lot of overlap between stupid and everyone else that's not poor. So it does cover, unfortunately, a large percentage of people, sadly. And and I, I hate to say this, but some of those people that are stupid are in leadership roles across not just the federal and state governments, but especially in communities where all of this kind of you know rubber hits the road. So, for example, Philadelphia is getting a lot of criticism for putting back indoor masks. And they had no compunction about it. Their public health officer, a very smart woman who I know happens to be, she's also African-American. She basically made the point. She said, hey, listen, last I checked, Philadelphia had a lot more like Black Americans than the rest of the country. And guess what? To Lori's point, this is exactly the population that has been tested last, treated last, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I think that this is where... So, you know, there's this notion that we now are at the stage where we have to, quote, assess individual risk. Well, David, I don't know if you've been to Vegas lately. I don't think people can do individual risk very well. Nobody seems to understand that. And very few Americans, much less world citizens, have taken some sort of probability course to decide, well, here's my potential probability of getting this kind of virus. And then to your point about long COVID, I have now exhausted myself and not trying to understand why people just want to like, you know, study. The NIH has a multi-billion dollar trial to assess the epidemiology of long COVID. It's called a recover trial. That's fine. Meanwhile, we're just, I'm seeing dozens of patients talking to colleagues. They're all seeing patients with a history of COVID in their past, just very unusual symptoms. Can't exactly pin it on COVID in the past, but there's nothing else that they can use to explain why people are experiencing the symptoms they are. Healthy people, mild illnesses, not always people who are in the hospital. Most of them were sick when they were not vaccinated, but there are a decent growing number that had contracted COVID even after vaccination and are having some lingering symptoms. So can you enumerate some of the symptoms? I, I yeah. recall at one point, you know, I had a flu and I said, well, I don't have COVID, you know, and it's a good thing because I hear COVID shrinks your brain size. And you responded, not just your brain. What else does it do? So I'll give you a true case. 42-year-old healthy male, pretty much the picture of health, presented with 
calcifications on his aortic valve. So basically has calcifications on the valve that controls most of the major blood input and output to his heart. And that's not normal. Totally benign history. No other reason for this except a history of COVID three months ago. So presenting with some shortness of breath and like exercise intolerance is someone who could Peloton pretty reliably, you know, an hour each day and was just experiencing like can't bike more than like 10 minutes, for example. So these are first world problems, one would say, but they're not when you start to think about people who never even present to the doctor. More common symptoms that we're seeing are joint pain, muscle aches, stiffness, headaches. You know, you'll hear a theme. These are all kind of nonspecific. You can see these symptoms in other illnesses, but when you string them together and you do blood work on them, they have some elevated kind of um, blood markers of inflammation. Sometimes they have normal blood work, but they're just not the same. In women, we're seeing a lot of menstrual irregularities. People who, you know, again, a year out and have either stopped their periods, have periods every two weeks, just what we're seeing with COVID is that it kind of insinuates and permeates into every aspect and cellular function of the body. And it can create haywire. It can overactivate parts of the body. And then it can kind of quiet or, you know, completely silence parts of the body that should respond into a crisis. So it's a, it is going to be, I, I've, I've kind of wondered, one of my, the most common diseases I treat now in patients as an internist is um, diabetes, hypertension, heart failure. I think 10, 20 years from now, like the people going through medical school and textbooks will have, you know, long COVID. We might call it something else. But long COVID will be one of those diseases that they study and also see more commonly than, than we realize. Kavita's saying, well, you know, 10, 20 years from now, this is what we're going to see from COVID. I think there was a point a couple of years ago where we were thinking, well, this is going to be over. And I don't know that anybody Not thinks me. that. Well, yeah. yeah, no, no, I know. I know. But, but that's what I'm sort of saying now is what is the outlook? Well, let me just say something about because uh, Kavita did a great job of running down the clinical view on the, you know, the level of the virology and trying to understand the pathogenesis of SARS-CoV-2, there's more and more evidence that we're looking at something that may, that is giving us clues about other diseases along the way, such as MS and chronic fatigue syndrome. It's showing us that we've underappreciated patient complaints for a long time, mm-hmm. decades, about sort of the long-term lingering effects of a really bad bout of flu or uh, Lyme disease infection with the Borrelia or Borrelia or uh, you know so whatever may be the cause, uh, Epstein-Barr virus, whatever. We're starting to understand more and more that. There's two mechanisms going on at the biological level that are probably going to be reversible in most people, but not everybody. And a lot of people may go into a permanent altered state because of this experience of being infected with the virus, even if they never really had a severe disease, if they never really had hospitalized COVID. And those include that First of all, there's a severe disruption of the immune system itself. And the immune system causes a massive inflammatory response. And that is in every organ of the body. There's no part of the body that somehow escapes the possibility of experiencing this. And in some cases, it's looking like the immune system disruption is based on our current available 
treatments and unalterable change. So somehow a lot of the signaling mechanisms within the immune system have become permanently disrupted. And in some cases, it's producing something akin to an autoimmune response so that your immune system is attacking your own tissue and causing these inflammatory responses. In some cases, your immune system is aiding and abetting the virus unwittingly and carrying virus into your brain, carrying virus into distant organs. And then another piece of this is what the virus does directly to cells that present with the ACE2 receptor, which is the key doorknob that this virus uses to open a door and get inside of a cell. And you know, when we think about something, uh, a lot of other types of viral diseases, we're usually talking about a pretty restricted receptor cell range. But the problem is ACE2 receptors are all over your body and your entire cardiovascular system has ACE2 receptors. Your lungs are full of them. Your brain is full of them. So there are just a huge host of ways that the virus can directly cause damage regardless of the immune system inflammatory response. So then the question becomes is, you know, how much of this do we have a toolkit to work with? And for how much of this does it remain genuinely mysterious and, you know, defy current scientific understanding? And I I hate to say it, but it's almost like a 50-50 mix. If you were talking inflammatory response, and I'm sure Kavita would, would be able to go into detail on this, But before COVID, you would have said, ah, throw steroids at it. You know, just dampen the immune system, bring it down with the hormones, get it to calm down, shut down. Well, throwing steroids at this disease is not turning out to be such a great idea. There's one steroid package that seems to work reasonably well. I'm sure Kavita can say more. I would prefer not to be acting like a doctor here. But overall, it's reminding me a lot of what was seen in 2003 with SARS, because there again, we had a dysregulated immune system. It just went bananas, much higher mortality rate. I mean, we're talking, you know, 60% of people who got infected ended up hospitalized and a third of them died. So it's a much more severe disease, but it caused the entire immune system to go into hyper response, like mega, mega, often referred to as a cytokine storm. And you had the immune system attacking everything all over the whole body, not just the virus. And for a lot of these people, what killed them was their own immune system, not SARS. To a lesser degree, I think we're seeing some similar things with COVID, a much less lethal disease. But long-term, I think we're, we're going to have a huge population around the world living with the long-term effects of this virus and the long-term psychological effects of the combination of unrelenting illness that falls in that box like chronic fatigue syndrome does of other people saying to you, know, shake out yourself out of that. Come on, get out of bed, get to work your body is profoundly fatigued. We're going to see a lot of that going forward that will just persist and persist, like having mononucleosis for months and months and months on end. And and then the psychological effects of grief, loss, isolation, 
this is true all over the world. It's so interesting the way that we now view, because we're all experts in isolation, grief, and loss. And, you know, it, it, it almost has become shorthand. Like a lot of people have said, well, Vladimir Putin has really suffered from the isolation of COVID. <laughs> and everybody goes, huh. You know what I'm saying? But there, everybody's like, oh, yeah, well, yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, you have somebody in the midst of committing these massive atrocities and large portion of the world just sort of sort of saying, checking that. Oh, yeah, COVID probably contributed to that, which is just a bizarre historical footnote. But Kavita, picking up on what Laurie said, there is still this other dimension of this, right, which is I don't know what do we just pass five or six hundred million cases in the world? But we've something like that, right? A lot of people have had it and the numbers aren't what they were, but people are still getting it. It looks like, you know, we could be, and I just got my second booster, you know, and it looks like we could be in for sort of a thing where you need to have COVID shots and boosters more than once a year, maybe, who knows? Is this just like going to be part of the mix and from now till, you know, forever, we, you go to the doctor and they're like, did you have a cold? Did you have a flu? Did you have COVID? Did you, you know, I mean, is that just part of where we are now? Or? Can I just say one quick thing before Kavita answers? To put that in a global context, first of all, most of the world never got a first dose still. Second of all, WHO is estimating just under 50% of the planet population has had a bout of COVID infection. But that means that 50% haven't. Mm -hmm. So we're a long ways from any mythological herd immunity, if in fact that exists. And then finally, we're talking in America about can we get our fifth dose, our 10th dose of vaccine? And the inequity of this is just phenomenal on a global scale. Yeah. I'll start with the kind of, uh, you know, where does this land? Honestly, it's where it is right now. So right now we're treating COVID. I'm going to refuse to use the word endemic because I feel like that's kind of an, a useful, not useful term at this point. It doesn't matter to Lori's point. We still have plenty of people who can get infected and we don't have a pattern that I can predict around some of these waves. So we're using COVID along with influenza. We're kind of starting to think of it in that like respiratory panel of diseases. And, and David, moving forward, I don't know, three, five, six months, two years, that's where it'll fall. So normally what we would have with other types of respiratory viruses is we have a seasonality to it. And then, oh, flu season's coming, but we would test for flu. We would test in kids for RSV. We would do these things kind of around these predictable seasons. I hope that that's where we get with COVID right now. I don't have that predictability, but we're kind of testing for everything. And then to your point about vaccines, it's funny, I had this... um, Put the equity thing aside for one second. I am happy to get vaccinated every four months if that's what keeps my immunity at a higher level and keeps me in an optimal state of protection. Is that an incredibly like gluttonous position now getting to the equity point to be in? Absolutely. And Lori's right. The issue with um, countries not getting first shots or even any shots at all, boosters, whatever, there's now it's now becoming incredibly complex. It's a combination of just straight up vaccine inequity. There's also now this like overlaying fabric of countries that don't want it. And there are reasons behind that. Same reason that like Botswana, for example, Laura, you know this several decades ago, didn't want to give 
pregnant women antiretrovirals, despite the evidence around HIV. So I think that this is now getting very, as I like to say, in global kind of issues, this is where the hard work begins. And I'm not sure we're ready to do that in the United States, where we actually kind of actively kind of deal with the disparities and some of the country's thoughts around like not wanting to vaccinate their citizens. And then the, but the second point I think is, I don't know, David, the whole thing though, I mean, as I kind of, you know, in my bubble in DC where I still wear masks indoors and places and I don't get looked at as funny as I do when I'm in Texas or Ohio or even in California, I actually had to get on a plane and do something for work in California. And it's as if COVID never was there ever, like in the Bay Area. And it kind of stunned me, people wanting to come up and touch, like shake my hands. And there is definitely like a, you know, people have moved on. And I was reading, I was refreshing John Barry's profiles of uh, the pandemic flu in the early 20th century. And there is this attitude that I see now that he documents that at one point, the world just decided the pandemic was over. And, and it's uh, there's a little bit more to it, obviously. But at around the same time, after several years, that basically people were sick of it and they were okay with a certain amount of disease burden and death. And it does feel like our country is at that point to some degree, whether I like it or not. It's interesting you bring up flu because the 1918 flu strain is still in circulation in the yeah. world. And it has it has undergone some mutations and evolution, but it periodically causes new epidemics around the world. And it we don't know where it originally came from. Right. Because back then, who knew anything about viruses? But we do know that it doesn't just disappear. And that's going to be the case with all these coronaviruses. Whatever strains and subvariants we may be dealing with with COVID, you know, we don't see the Wuhan strain in circulation anymore, but it's probably in an animal host somewhere and could return. And we're likely to see circulation in and out of animal hosts going forward. The virus is still evolving. And I, I resent a lot of the things that get said in the public square, if you will, by supposed experts, such as the claim that, well, it's inevitable, the virus will evolve towards lower and lower virulence yeah, we and don't higher know and higher transmissibility. We, How do they know that? We have no idea. What, what crystal have, ball are they looking I, I agree at? completely, Lori. I'm, I'm flabbergasted by people. And by the way, some of these people are incredibly, I mean, I would have thought of them as probably some of the foremost experts, but Lori, I have no idea why people are saying that. And I was gonna, actually going to ask you. Don't ask her right now. Because I normally take a little break here. Oh yes, and the and and we and we say goodbye to the people who are joining us from the general public, and we say if you want to keep listening, go and become a member. And we've been doing great. Lots of people become members recently, and we encourage it. You just go to the DSR network, click on membership for about a, you know, I don't know what it is, like the price of a latte a month. You get to go and and be a member, and you get a lot of bonus content. And going forward, even more bonus content. So you should go and do that for everybody else. See you later. And we'll be back in a moment for our members. 